Hey there, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. My name is Daniel Trinum, and I will be your host as always. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to let you know of a few things of note. First, you may or may not be aware that I host another podcast called The Third Seat. The Third Seat is unrelated to the podcast you are listening to right now, but if you'd like to check it out, then I will put a link in the description of today's episode that you can use to listen to it. If you like this podcast, then I really think you will like The Third Seat as well, so I highly recommend you check it out. Next, I want to let you know of a few ways you can support the podcast. First, be sure to tell a friend if you enjoy the show. Word of mouth is not only a great way to help support the show, but it's also zero cost. Secondly, if you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure to leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a positive review is one of the best ways of not only supporting the show, but it also gives me direct feedback from you regarding how you feel about the show overall. I greatly appreciate if you decide to take the time to support the show in any of these ways. Finally, if you'd like to follow me or the show on social media, then feel free to check out the description of today's episode. Here you will find all affiliated and mentioned links, as well as how you can support the show online. As always, I want to thank you for tuning into and supporting the show. It really means a lot to me, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you. All right, everyone. Well, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Thank you all for tuning into today's episode. My name is Daniel Trinum. I'll be your host as always. Uh, and today I have a really special guest with me, someone that uh, I was initially a little bit skeptical to see if they might uh, reach out or if they might respond to my request to chat with them. And I was pleased to have the opportunity to chat with them. Uh, and, and hopefully it'll be a fun and productive conversation. So uh, Katie, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So obviously I'm familiar with your work and what you do, but for those that are not aware, Mm -hmm. do you care to just give a little bit of insight about who you are, uh, what you do and, and, uh, what, just how you got to where you are right now? Yeah, for sure. So yes, my name is Katie, but on the internet, I go by money with Katie and (laughs) I run the, I mean, I'll call it the brand, but blog, podcast, social media presence that is money with Katie. So what that really is, is a, a, my attempt at creating a, uh, I'd say a platform wherein I can help other young people build wealth and do it within the context of the socioeconomic and cultural time that we're living in. So I got really into personal finance back in I guess it was like 2017, 2018, but I didn't start really writing about it as Money with Katie until 2020. So it was a few years of research and uh, excessive consumption of personal finance media. And it wasn't until I started actually adding my voice to the conversation that I think I realized there's something kind of missing here that I don't see very many people talking about and acknowledging. So I think it's important to, I guess, say first and foremost that yes, I am all about the tactics and the math and the numbers and the tax code and all of that good stuff, but that stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? So I think it's important that we kind of acknowledge the frameworks that we're making these types of decisions. And so I really try to strike that balance uh, with my content, but you know, it's not for everybody. I think the people that like it really like it and the people (laughs) that don't like it really don't like it. And so that's, that's my burden to bear, but (laughs) that's, that's with everybody on the, especially in the, in the the monetary realm, uh, you go to any kind of, you know, online financial quote unquote guru, uh, you'll have the people that love them and you'll have the people that, you know, don't love them. Uh, so, you know, it comes, it comes with the territory, but I know for me personally, I don't remember when exactly, like how I came across what you do or when exactly it was, but most of my life growing up, I, when I, when I kind of found out about the like online financial uh, information sphere, I guess it was always in like two, it was only two extremes. It was either Mm -hmm. the extreme of, you know, and this isn't like to shame either, either, but like, you know, uh, you have like the, everyone who knows like, uh, like Dave Ramsey and like everything that he, he does. And I, I think a lot of things that he does, like he has a a lot of great points and then you have Mm -hmm. the exact like opposite end of the spectrum where it's like, you know, take loans out on every single thing you have, like like just throw all your money into these different things, like being very risky with all your finances. Like, like those are two different extremes. And for most of my, most of my like 
I guess I'll loosely say adult life as if I'm like, you know, some wise sage or something, but, uh, you know, growing up as I've kind of become more aware of this, I always felt like there's gotta be some kind of middle ground. Like these, these two felt like very different extremes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like you fill that realm in my mind very well. Uh, because for me, I think a lot of times, a lot of the information online regarding finances can feel very like not not uh conducive to just your average everyday individual Mm -hmm. uh you know not every individual is going to spread their money out across multiple different like real estate assets or not every individual is going to be able to you know curb every single spending activity they have in the sake of you know tearing down uh you know whatever like debt they have it's Mm -hmm. going to be different for each individual and for me the longest time is like finding out what that looked like for me like what the best financial plan looked like for me and that's when I came across you. And I was like, oh. a really uh, a, a great kind of middle ground for me. Well, so thank you. It's funny, too, that you mentioned Dave Ramsey and kind of the extremes, because back in the day, also like the pre Dave Ramsey era, 80s, 90s time, um, I think he came up in the 90s, but yeah financial content if you can even call it that <laughs> we didn't really have content back then a- we am had, and like, fm radio yes we had newsletter tv and radio so it was a little bit of a different bag but a lot of the financial content that was out there was pe- for people that were already rich it was mm-hmm. like stock picking to your point real estate uh commercial real estate it was it was for people that were already wealthy because the assumption by and large was that well, if somebody's poor, if somebody's in debt, they are in debt and they're poor because they don't care about their finances. They don't care about money. They don't want to build wealth. And Dave Ramsey was really the first individual that he was the first person that started making content along with somebody like Susie Orman for normal people and people that were in debt who wanted to get better. So I think, you know, we have to take the good with the bad and and acknowledge that. But it is it is kind of interesting how uh, I do think personal finance content in general has evolved over time and has really been, I, I hate to phrase it like this, but kind of a response to things getting worse. Like mm-hmm. the, the economy as the as the economic conditions in the United States in particular have worsened for the majority, meaning you're 90% that have suffered decades of wage stagnation and the cost of living has exploded, personal finance advice has kind of like been inserted as the solution to these larger policy problems. And so I think that is the balance that I've been trying to really weigh this year is how do we teach people how to operate within this system, but also point out where the system is broken and kind of the dystopian hilarity of the fact that we are trying to say, if you cut out every small thing in your life, you'll be able to build wealth on your salary that should be twice as high if it had kept mm-hmm. up with productivity per capita. <laughs> so it's a balance and it's 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 a complex, nuanced topic. And I think that's why the, neither extreme does a very good job of capturing it well, because it's very hard to boil down things with a lot of complexity and nuance into quippy talking points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I definitely agree. I, and it's, it's so much more prevalent now just with the way things, I mean, obviously things were in, in so many different ways, things were very different in the eighties and the nineties. Uh, but now so much so like you can see so many just like short clips of like, this is the, this is the one thing you need in order to do right. that in order to, you know, save your finances or build wealth in this way, which not like, you know, those clips or highlights taken in a vacuum, like maybe they're good, maybe they're bad. But the reality is like, it's very generally much more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I I see one thing I did want to ask you is, is kind of in relation to uh, an episode that you did not too long ago, I forget who was on it. Um, but one thing, so with, with like my nine to five job that I do, I utilize LinkedIn or LinkedIn a lot for better or for worse. It's just mm-hmm. part of what, uh, I have to use and a very prominent, maybe it's just the people I'm connected to. Maybe I need to, I need to change <laughs> things, but, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a me problem. You're like, maybe it's my filter bubble. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But a lot of time, like something that's very, uh, prominent right now is at least from the way I view it is people very much demonizing the uh, demonizing the you know nine to five life oh yeah and the romanticization there's a, a two dollar word for you uh 
of, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, you see all the time. It's like, I don't work nine to five. I work 24 seven. Like that's my schedule, you know, like, and I know that's very, like, that's, that's a very simple way of looking at it, but I see all the time people like that's, that's like the only way you can, you know, in today's world, like that's the only way to really live a fulfilling life. If you want to build wealth and, and have, uh, you know, money that works for you, like that's the way you can do it. And so I look at that and I'm like me who works a nine to five job, I'm like, surely that can't be the case. Like, right. sure, I'm, I'm not saying every job is is perfect. And, you know, there are, and there are flaws in every way of doing every job, but surely that can't be the full story. Mm-hmm. And you did an episode not too long ago, I forget exactly when it was of this exact topic of, you know, kind of embracing the benefits, like taking the good with the bad with the mm-hmm. nine to five, obviously, there are inherent benefits to every kind of job and every kind of field. But being able to weigh the good with the bad mm-hmm. of both sides of the coin is is very important. And so I want to ask you about that. What is your kind of for those that haven't heard that episode and didn't, mm-hmm. didn't haven't got a chance to look into it? What are your thoughts on this ongoing debate of nine to five or I'm going to be my own boss and do my own thing? Uh, kind totally, of totally. So I guess, first of all, there are two as we were you know, kind of listening to you here, there's two directions that are kind of coming up simultaneously, one of which is the nine to five versus entrepreneur, solopreneur fetishization of entrepreneurship. And then the other track that I'm thinking about is how you mentioned the kind of hustle culture grind set of, I don't work nine to five, I work 25, seven. (laughs) And if you want to build well, so I I guess I kind of want to address both, but to start with the first one, I should be very upfront that I had an, a very uh, exceedingly unique experience in the sense that I was working a nine to five that I did like and was highly compensated for, at least for my degree and my age, mm-hmm. where I was working for a tech company and my total compensation was like around $140,000 per year. Mm-hmm. I never thought in my life I was going to earn that much money, particularly not by 27. So I was thrilled about that nine to five, but also wanted to do money with Katie on the side, had built it as a side hustle, ended up having this very lucrative exit where the aqua hire, the compensation structure that I have now with the media company that acquired money with Katie. So I don't want to, it would be disingenuous for me to say, well, that doesn't happen. And like, that's bad advice because in my particular case, it has been true that doing my own thing did lead to more wealth. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very important to note that that is the exception and not the rule. The exception, mm-hmm. not because there's something uniquely special about me, just because statistically speaking, it doesn't happen very often. And I frankly got very, very lucky and benefited from quite a bit of luck and privilege throughout my life. Not to say that I didn't work hard, but let's call a spade a spade. Like I've had a pretty easy time of it. So I do think that um, the romanticization is maybe in some instances valid, but I would say in the vast majority of cases, the nine to five is really depending on who you work for, an exceptional way to build wealth because you do have a set compensation. You often have health insurance. You have employer-sponsored retirement plans that often come with a match. And to be fair, I work now far more than I ever did when I had a nine to five, particularly when I was working from home. The amount of effort and time and mental bandwidth that was required for me to work a corporate job paled in comparison Mm -hmm. to the amount of effort and mind, you know, just the amount of time, effort and energy that has to go into what I'm doing now. So I would say what I'm doing now is a lot more challenging and a lot more time consuming, but it's also more rewarding. So Mm -hmm. I think it comes down to personal preference. And I always had that sense personally that I wanted to do something like this, like even when I was in college and really wanted to, you know, be a fortune 500 CMO. So at some point in my career, I still always deep down was kind of obsessed with and enthralled by the idea of setting out on your own and doing something that is your own. So I think I always had that feeling. And if somebody is listening to this and also has that feeling, it may be worth it for you to give it a shot, right? Mm-hmm. But if that doesn't resonate with you and you're like, no, 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 like I love what I do, I love my company or I love 
you know, working for others, it's, mm-hmm. it's one is not inherently better than the other. I think it's mm-hmm. just a matter of self-awareness and, and what motivates and incentivizes you most, because make no mistake, there is excellent, excellent money to be made in working for someone else. And often with less emotional turmoil associated. So I would say that on the nine to five versus entrepreneurship grind, uh, I would also say that a lot of the time we, I think we've gotten really loose with the term entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like if we're driving for Uber and working on <laughs> Fiverr and selling clothes on Poshmark and teaching fitness classes and walking dogs, <laughs> we're not an entrepreneur. Like that's not, that's not the same thing. And you're probably going to mm-hmm. burn out trying to cobble together 14 different side hustles. Like you'd probably do better just to get a regular quote unquote regular job, yeah. unless you like doing all those different things. I mean, I don't judge, but um, I do think that it's kind of, I've, kind of found it funny to see how often we like, well, I don't even consider myself an entrepreneur. Like I had a blog, right? Like (laughs) let's not, let's not toot our own horn too hard here. Um, But on the like, you know, grind set workaholic thing, I would also file that under the same category of personal finance advice as trying to fill this gap where economic circumstances have deteriorated for the 90%. I would plug in hustle culture grind set into that same framework and say, this is also just a reaction to things getting worse. And it's grappling for control saying, well, if I just work harder, if I just grind harder, wake up earlier, it's going to work out for me. And Hey, maybe it will. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not to say that if you are working 90 hours a week, you're not going to become wealthy and successful. Mm -hmm. Just that the number of we'll call them podium spots. The number of people that get to reach that level has less to do with how hard you individually are working and more to do with the system that you're in. You know, in order for our economy to function, there are winners and losers. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there has to be losers. Somebody's going to be the loser, even if they're working hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very hard pill to swallow that it is a zero sum game in a lot of ways and anyone can be successful, but not everyone can be successful. Mm -hmm. That's just not how cutthroat American capitalism, neoliberal capitalism works. And I think if the hustle grind set thing is very motivating to you and it makes you happy and you genuinely derive fulfillment from it, then I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I also would not position that to someone as a solution for, oh, you know, you're not making as much money as you want to be. You just need to work twice as hard. It's like, well, who are we even intending that advice for? Like if you're a low wage service worker, that's just insulting. Mm -hmm. You just need to work harder. It's like a lot of fair portion of, of like the American constituency is working incredibly hard and is not really making all that much progress. So I think it's like a very specific niche of advice that works for a very specific type of person. Um, but ultimately is trying to solve for, I would say like decades of policy failure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's a big, like, that's something that I've come to realize is that, one, I think part of this kind of this this culture of like, oh, I've got to just be, you know, I've got to have this job and this job and these, you know, side incomes and these different things. Like, like you said, if that's what makes you happy and if that's what brings you fulfillment, then you know, more power to you. Like, yeah, do what go you for need it. to do. But I think it's important to recognize as well, like there are as I don't know who coins. I don't know who coined this phrase. Uh, and I, I don't know if this is just a, I, w- I was raised in Southeast Tennessee. So I don't know if this was just a, a oh. Southeast Tennessee thing, uh, <laughs> but they always say there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's more than one way to get to the end result you want. Um, and and I hope, I hope Sam wasn't listening to me. I was that. just going to uh, say, we'll you know, close his ears yeah, for this. Yeah. Analogy. We'll close his ears for that. Uh, no, no cats are harmed in the, in the recording <laughs> of this podcast, but, um, <laughs> but I, I think there's more than one way to get to the same destination. Um, uh, you know, some people really want that financial quote, that quote, quote unquote financial freedom. Like they want to have uh, the ability to go into any, any realm of the world and not have to worry about the tab on anything. They want to, you know, that's fine. Like, that's great. Some mm-hmm. people want to just have the security of themselves and their loved ones. Some people want mm-hmm. to want to have a structured lifestyle where they they're given a job and they're given a task and they show up every day. They do that well. And that's what, that's what brings them joy. Mm-hmm. Those are all valid, like valid ways to live your life and valid ways to provide for yourself and your loved ones. I think a key is not to 
say, oh, this one way is the mm. way to do it. If you don't do it this way, then you're you've messed up. Maybe yeah. there are ways you can you can improve the way you're currently doing things, but just like uh, you know, you know, just like there are multiple ways to make money, there's multiple ways to live a happy and fulfilling life. Maybe for you, it's having multiple businesses or having multiple streams of income and bringing those in, you know, numerous ways. Yeah. And, and you know, working on your own time, or maybe it's being happy with what you have and and working a job from nine to five and being proud of the work you do. There are numerous Absolutely. different ways to get to the same end results. Uh, and, and I think part of you know, like you said, part of the growth of this hustle culture is due to the fact that people not necessarily are in love with the grind, quote unquote, but are mm -hmm. more, they, they feel the need to have to provide more or have to bring in yes. more due to just the world we live in. Um, and, and I think that's something that can get very well get lost in the weeds oftentimes is that there's not just one way to, you know, provide for your, you and your loved ones and have a, live a happy life. There's multiple ways to, to get to uh, the same result in the end, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I also think there's an interesting, I think hustle culture uh, does an interesting job of painting this very direct correlation between hard work and wealth. And I don't think that correlation is as strong as people think it is as directly correlated as people think it is because you can be an exceptionally upstanding, hardworking individual and never amass wealth. You can also be as crooked as they come and exploit a lot of people mm -hmm. and kind of benefit from their labor without compensating them fairly and become ludicrously successful and wealthy. So that's that I'm glad you said that as well as the, the just the fantastic point that like what is the actual goal here? I assume for most people, money itself is just a means to an end. It's not the ends. And if it is, I think it's probably worth reassessing like the relationship that one has with money. But ultimately, my assumption is that you want more money because you want to live a better life and you probably feel this fundamental need for security. Mm -hmm. And to your point, people satisfy that need in different ways, but there is certainly a diminishing return on excess income and wealth. And uh, to me, the people that are earning a lot and have a lot of streams of income and are really getting after it, that's usually just their personality. Like they're just restless and they like to do that kind of stuff. And the money follows as opposed to being patently money hungry and mm -hmm. then sacrificing their quality of life. I'm sure that happens, but for, for my part, most of the people that I know that are doing kind of what we're describing, it's like, they just love the game. That's, mm -hmm. that's why they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to ask you and you made, you made great points. One thing, one thing I do want to ask you on a somewhat related, but different note. So and I have a, I have a funny, I, I believe it's funny now, funny story to uh, go along with this question, but do you personally have any like experiences or did you have any experiences with money or finances growing up or just in your life in general so far that have shaped you <laughs> or have had a large impact in shaping how you act right now? And, and with, with regards to your money, I'll give you kind of the, the story that goes along with just so far where I'm at in my life or the, the, the most <laughs> formidable monetary experience I have. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> It just makes me laugh every time I think about it. Um, so I was in high school uh, and this was, I want to say it was my like sophomore or junior year, I think. Um, so this would have been 20, 2017, I think. Uh, 2017, 2016, somewhere in that ballpark. And I was going through, uh, I, I, I've had more phases than the moon, uh, as the saying goes. <laughs> uh, and so I was going through a phase where I was really into uh, like, sneakers and like street mm. streetwear culture like that was that was the, yeah. the phase of life I was in I was like I, that was if you could look at my Instagram feed at this time in my life it was like it was like you know kicks on fire sneakerhead like bleach report this, <laughs> like, it was like sports and shoes like the, that was the only thing that came through my feed um and that that was just something I was enamored with at the time and so I was uh me and some of my friends we got tickets to go to sneaker con have you ever heard of ever heard of sneaker con before mm -hmm. Yeah. So we went there and we honestly had a really good time. That was such a, it was a very interesting group of people there. Um, 
but I had somehow convinced myself that it was a good idea to purchase a pair of shoes that I've been wanting that at the t- they didn't retail for this, but they were no longer being sold in retail. And so they were on the resale market mm. and it cost me $350 for this pair of shoes. Now I know that shoes do go for much more than that, but at the time I was in high school and oh, I should yeah. not have been spending, totally. have been spending $350 on this. Uh, and so when I came back, uh, you know, I got home and I was with my parents and they were like, Hey, did you have a good time? I was like, yeah, I had a great time. They're like, Oh, did you get anything? And it's like, yeah, I got these shoes. I really liked them. They were like, Oh, okay. How much did it cost? And I was I was like, oh God. I was like, well, I was like, before I tell you this, let me preface the fact that I, I promise I saved this money up. Like I didn't just, you know, get a yeah. new MX card. And, and I was like, but I may have spent, you know, close to around $400 on this. And they were like, okay, okay. Uh, you know, they, they were a little taken aback by it. Uh, but <laughs> the good news is one, I was actually able to resell them uh, in college when it, for, for a bit of a profit, surprisingly. Awesome. Uh, so it turned out good in the end, but I realized, you know, months and years after that, I was like, man. I really should not have just thrown that money like that. That was that is not a good practice in, mm. in my life to just, uh, you know, to, to just way over over um, overspend on things like that. When the reality is I had plenty of shoes in my in my closet back mm. at the war uh, and it, it has it has become something that impacts me now. Um, after the fact. So I want to know if you have any stories like that or any experiences that really impact the way you use your money right now. Well, it's interesting because my reaction to that or the conclusion that I drew from that story was actually different than the one that you drew. Cause I was thinking, wow, good for this high school kid for saving up hundreds. I don't think I ever had more than like $20 at a time in high school. Cause money just burned a hole in my pocket. So good for you. And you made uh, you a know. profit. I mean, well, like, the, the, the profit was a bit inadvertent. Uh, I certainly <laughs> didn't, I didn't certainly didn't purchase them yes, with, it the, was not the, with plan. the goal. Yeah. It was not the plan. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did luck out and get a little bit of profit on it. Yeah. Day, so. So I guess the the thing that immediately came to mind, though, when you asked the question was back when I was, let's see, like five or six, I'm an only child and both of my parents worked when I was little. My, <clears throat> sorry, I'm like, have a frog in my throat. My dad was a chemical engineer and my mom worked in sales at the same company. So that's how they met. They met at work. They got married, whatever. So initially, like even back in the nineties or early two thousands, I had these two working parents that were both doing well for themselves. I had a nanny and I remember like loving this nanny. This is totally a tangent that has nothing to do with it. Like, (laughs) I don't remember like caring that they both worked or being like, Oh, they don't spend time with me. Like, I don't remember that at all. I had this great nanny and I, my mom worked from home. But when I turned five or six, she had reached a point in her sales career where she was very stressed out all the time. Uh, She wasn't very happy. And I think she had a a moment of reckoning where, you know, she just kind of realized, like, I have this daughter that I don't spend as much time with as I could be because I'm working. And it's getting to the point that I don't even really enjoy this job. Mm -hmm. So what's the point, really? If I can, you know, be home with her and we can live on my spouse's income. Well, so she quits and they dropped from one income to two, or I'm sorry, from two incomes to one. And she got bored after like six weeks and became a teacher. So <laughs> she didn't really last very long. That's what long. we all do. That's what I we know, all do, in you like know. the stay-at-home mom world. She like cleaned all the cabinets out and was like, oh my God, I'm going stir crazy. So she she ended up like working at the same place where I went to elementary school. And like, I had a very nice childhood as a result of that because we were on the same schedule and it was great. But the point is, is that they went from bringing home, I would assume a ballpark 200 to $300,000 a year between them to like less than 150. So their income got more than slashed in half. And her kind of response or reaction to that move was she became very, very uh, frugal and a very stringent budgeter. Now, to be fair, $150,000 for a family living in rural Kentucky is a lot of money, like to make no mistake. But she, I think, had very much internalized that scarcity feeling of like, we only have one income now. We can't mess this up. We need to make sure we're living really well beneath our means. And part of the reason she was able to quit was because they were already living well beneath their means. But now it was like, okay, double down. So she had for years this spreadsheet and we called it the SS, 
which I think is really funny because that was like the name of the Nazi police. And I'm like, <laughs> the, the, the analogy there is like a little almost too easy. But like she was such she was a Nazi about spending. She had this as every single receipt, every penny that left our household for 20 years was cataloged in this spreadsheet each year on a different tab with the months running down the columns. So we knew exactly how much was going in and out. She was the coupon clipper. She was the, she's going to spend two hours at the grocery store, you know, comparing the prices to see what's cheaper per ounce. And so I really grew up watching that and internalizing that as, well, you just live beneath your means. Mm -hmm. Like money is a scarce resource. You should protect it at all costs. Mm -hmm. It is something that is worth protecting. You don't spend on credit cards. You know, you either pay in cash or if you're going to use a credit card, you pay it off immediately. Um, you don't take out debt. Like these were all lessons that when you're a kid, right? Like you're just internalizing what the two adult human beings or one adult human being that's raising you, you just internalize everything they do and that becomes normal. So I do credit a lot of both my, I would call it like innate savviness. It was learned. It's not innate. That's probably the wrong word, but like the fact that I never really had a problem with overspending or debt or uh, consumption as an adult mm -hmm. with that experience. But I also credit in some ways, my fear of not having enough to those experiences. Like now I earn more and we are worth more than I, I could have ever dreamed we would be. Mm -hmm. And I still stress out about money. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so fascinating that our feelings about finances or feelings about our own money are very uncorrelated with the reality of mm -hmm. how much we have or how much we're earning. So mm -hmm. I do think it's important always to kind of think about the context in which you grew up and some of the things that you internalized as a kid and you know, is there anything that you want to unlearn that mm -hmm. maybe is not serving you anymore and maybe isn't true for you in the same way that it maybe was true for your parents? Mm -hmm. I see this all the time with people who, especially people that underwent, I would say, financially traumatic experiences, like where their parents maybe lost a home and they were homeless for a while or experienced food insecurity where they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from, or they were going to be, they were going through these opulent periods of overspending when their parents had money to only being able to eat school lunch because they had nothing or going to the food pantry. Um, those things really, really stick with you. They leave a very indelible mark on your perception of money and can often leave you with something akin to PTSD. So I think it's, we do each other a great disservice and do ourselves a disservice when we ignore these stories, like you just mentioned, because a lot of them are more impactful for our attitudes and our behaviors than, you know, the, some of this stuff is really what's in the driver's seat for how we behave. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up uh, the idea of like of monetary scarcity or this idea mm -hmm. that like, oh, we have to protect the money we have at all costs. Yeah. Like, I, I totally get that. And I don't, what I'm, what I'm about, like, the, the tangent I'm about to go on is I hope it doesn't sound like, oh, you know, just just throw money. Like, what is money? It, it's oh, not yeah. anything. Like, I understand that money, it can be hard to come by. And I, I totally get that why that attitude persists with a lot of people, myself included. Um, but I, for whatever reason, you know, I I have always had a hard time. And I want to see if this is something that you've ever dealt mm -hmm. with. Um, you know, growing up, like, I, I'm I'm from a very small town in East Tennessee. Uh, I'm currently living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is, which oh, nice. is you know, yeah. Uh, but I'm from about an hour up the road in a town where there's literally like a thousand people. We have one stoplight. It's like it's very it's like wow. a like a small town, small yeah. town, you know. Um, and so growing up, like I I grew up in a very in an area that's not known for like you know large vast amounts of wealth or anything like that, but due to just the occupations of my parents and the work and, you know, what they do, like I have had a very, um, a very privileged upbringing so far. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm self-aware enough to realize that, uh, mm -hmm. they helped me, they help pay for my college. Like they have said, I would not be sitting here right now doing what I do if it was not for them. So a lot of, yeah. you know, when you hear the saying, no man is an Island, like that is, that is me. Yes. I would not be doing anything Agreed. if it wasn't for them. Um, and so I say that to say like growing up, I didn't have a ton of like 
you know, food insecurity or, or monetary mm-hmm. insecurity from, from a familial standpoint. Mm-hmm. And even at that, I never had a huge, like, aside from when I, you know, dropped almost $400 on a pair of shoes, uh, <laughs> I didn't have like a huge spending problem or anything growing up. Like yeah. I, I used, I would, I would work jobs in high school and, and work jobs in, in college and would be able to save money and stuff. And even with all that taking into, into consideration, the fact that my family was well off, I was personally well off because I, I had some money, like I wasn't filthy rich, but I had money, mm-hmm. you know, to get through college and to pay for groceries, mm-hmm. thing like that. Still, like even a little bit to this day, I, I would struggle with the idea that like, I can't, I can't utilize money in any, anything outside of the bare necessities mm. for so long before, before I really started like keeping track of my money, you know, through a budget um, and just, just keeping track of where my money goes, I would be like terrified to, to purchase anything outside of like my groceries or, you know, gas I needed or, or just the, the bare necessities. Cause to me, it was such a almost painful experience mm-hmm. to give the money away that I felt like I might need in the future, you know? Yeah. And, and again, I understand how that attitude is necessary. A lot of times if an individual is in a extremely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, precarious financial situation, but for a lot of people, like I would consider myself that right now. And I would, it seems like you would consider yourself this, like I am not in a position right now where I'm in dire financial you know, uh, like, like I need a life preserver thrown to me, a right, financial life right. preserver. I don't need that right now. And so being able to, w- once you get to that position, being able to kind of unshackle yourself from this mm-hmm. scarcity mindset, not, not a overly frivolous mindset, but being able to unshackle yourself from this idea that maybe I can spend money on, you know, uh, the, on, on this fun thing or that thing that doesn't provide any major utility, but is just something that brings me joy and happiness. I think that's an important step in your own personal financial well-being because if money is only a an anchor that drags you down mm. even you know whether you have a lot or not if that's if it's only something that drags you down and, and makes your day worse um that might be a signal that you know we need to change our relationship to the money we have that was certainly something i had to do and still continually do to this day um but it's for whatever reason that was always my way of approaching money whenever i was younger and still a little bit to this day you know mm-hmm. yeah totally um I think it's interesting because I definitely have gone through phases with that type of behavior because growing up, I don't, like I said, I kind of money burned a hole in my pocket. I'd get allowance or money from a part-time job that I worked and it was pretty much gone as soon as I had it. So I wouldn't say that that was something that I experienced as a kid, but when I found the financial independence retire early movement and started really internalizing a lot of that frugality language and financial freedom language, I found it very hard to spend money on things because I knew the potential energy of that money. So it was like, well, if I don't spend this $5 on this frivolous thing, it'll turn into $20 in 30 years and it'll shave four minutes off my retirement time. Like You're constantly always doing that really ridiculous calculus yes. in your head. And I do think that some people could certainly benefit from having more of that attitude if you have what I would consider like an overconsumption problem where you're Mm -hmm. constantly trying to acquire new things for that dopamine hit. Then yes, understanding the power of exponential compounding is probably more the strain of thinking that would be beneficial to you long-term. But I agree. I think that there are a lot of a lot of people that have that type of scarcity mindset, um, myself included, uh, maybe not as strongly now as I used to, but I do think that it it comes down to a shift in the perception of like what money is for. And for me, I remember being told like money is abundant. There's always more out there for you to go get. Like you can always earn more. You can always. And I think that that's just such an interesting mindset shift because that didn't really resonate with me immediately. I still continued to kind of have that hoarding mentality, mm-hmm. but the more it sunk in and the more that I realized that my time today, right now at 10, 26 AM on Friday, October 14th is no less valuable than my time in the future. That was, I think what really helped me 
release the grip a little bit and understand like money is meant to flow. It is meant to flow between people. It is meant to, you know, if you're always holding on to it so tightly, you're kind of blocking that flow. And it sounds very airy fairy, but I do think it's a little bit interesting that as I've relaxed my grip a little bit and started to take a more fluid approach to, yeah, I'm going to be super generous with my friends. I had a friend that like his dog was, uh, his dog had passed away from Mm -hmm. cancer very suddenly Mm -hmm. and it was uh, turned into a very expensive situation for him. Mm -hmm. And I knew he was like really, really hurting, So I sent him $500 and I was like, here, here's the money to go, you know, cremate your dog and have him put in this special container. And it's like, and you know, last year I never would have done something like that. But I think that that attitude of like, none of this is really ever ours. Like Mm -hmm. we have to deploy this in ways that we see fit to both make our own lives better, to improve the lives of the people around us. There's always more out there that you can earn and you know, the, the time that you have now on this planet is no less valuable than like the 15 years from now that you're trying to plan for. Um, and it's not guaranteed. So not to say that a little healthy dose of YOLO can help sometimes, but <laughs> I think it's a balance worth striking. And I definitely think some people take that too far, but, uh, if you find yourself having a very difficult time separating from money, I think that, kind of comforting reminder that like, it's meant to flow. It's Mm -hmm. not meant to be hoarded by one individual. You're not meant to squeeze it as tightly as possible and white knuckle grip it once you get it. Like it is a tool for you to use to improve your life and the lives in your community. And, you know, as long as you're planning for your own future, you don't have to overdo it. Yeah. If you ever if you uh, ever decide to do another merch line uh, for your show, I think you should make a healthy dose of YOLO. Uh, oh one my of the, god, one of the that's taglines. so good! That's <laughs> so that. good. That was funny. I like that. Uh, but no, I I definitely agree with a lot of what you were saying there. Being able to get to a point where, not that, like like you said, uh, I think some individuals would benefit. Like if you have an overconsumption problem, obviously one of the solutions to that is to you know put the brakes on it and mm-hmm. not be so over you know not overspend so much. Uh, but at some point having that healthy relationship, understanding that, yeah, you should, you know, save and invest your money properly because obviously who doesn't want to retire? Who doesn't want to have mm-hmm. uh, a safety net of money in the future? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. obviously. But at the same time, being able to use money in ways that fulfill you, like you mm-hmm. said, like being able to detach yourself from that money that you gave to your friends. If you if you didn't have uh, a more healthy relationship with your personal finances, you wouldn't have been, you likely wouldn't have been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think striking that balance can be different for everybody, obviously. But um, I think it's something that I know I'm all constantly working on. I know a lot of people probably are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's something that once you get better at it, it's it's a extremely rewarding experience, you know. Yeah, and and um, I would add too that your it it all does go back for me to that that essence of like the way you feel about money is uncorrelated with how much money you have. Mm-hmm. There was a, I was listening to this episode of the Ramit Sethi podcast, uh, which I will tune into sometimes when the titles are particularly uh, <laughs> kind of clickbaity, but <laughs> there was this guy that he was talking to who was having trouble because he was worth $8 million and wouldn't shop anywhere but the Dollar Tree. He wouldn't buy organic fruit because mm-hmm. he didn't want to pay for it. And to me at that point, it's like, bro, you've already won the game. You have now lost the forest for the trees. Like Mm -hmm. you have more money than you probably will ever be able to spend, particularly Mm -hmm. if it's invested wisely. Mm -hmm. And yet you're stressing out about going to Whole Foods instead of the Kroger or the the dollar store. It Mm -hmm. just, it can so be taken too far and it just, it kills me sometimes, especially yeah. because on FinTwit, financial Twitter, you see a lot of glorification of wealthy people who like cosplay poverty. Mm-hmm. And the implication is that, oh, if you're really, really frugal and cheap, like you're going to become a multimillionaire. It's mm-hmm. like, not exactly. Like mm-hmm. the, you know, Warren Buffett lives in the same house he lived in, in Omaha, Nebraska, you know, for the last 30 years, but he also has a private jet. <laughs> he he eats McDonald's every day, but he does not have hundreds of billions of dollars because he eats at McDonald's. <laughs> like these are completely uncorrelated 
experiences. And so I, it bothers me sometimes that we kind of glorify and prop up really wealthy people who are supposedly still living as though they have nothing. I'm like, well, then what's the point? Because Mm -hmm. all of you having all this money is just making everyone else poorer. So if you're Mm -hmm. not even going to spend it and put it back into the economy, what is the point? Like Mm -hmm. give it back then it drives me insane. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit uh, about just where, where you are right now. I I saw recently, um, you know, in the past, maybe it was like last week or so, uh, you put a post on Instagram and mm-hmm. it was about the, the first screen was the picture of you at the, on the built, the, the building. And oh, yeah. where was it? I was like, what, what building Time is square. it? Yeah. I was like, what am I trying to, I can't think of the words. <laughs> uh, and you talked about just kind of getting to that point. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to just hear a little bit from you, just what your reflections are on where you are now. And part of your story of getting to where you are now, because, with you know the way the world is now considering you know uh just the internet of things um everyone wants to everyone wants to get to that point uh where you know like you said like everyone wants to live everyone has some kind of dream life they want to live mm-hmm. um and it can be very easy to look at the warren buffets of the world or the mm-hmm. you know whoever of the world and say oh man like I I wish I could do what they did, but some like, I I could never do that. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, they were given some crazy opportunity that Mm -hmm. is not afforded to people like me. Like I I could never do that. Mm -hmm. But part of the point of what you were saying in that Instagram post, I don't want to take too much away from you is that (laughs) it was not a linear, a linear track uh, from where you started to where you are now. And so just share a little bit about your story mm-hmm. and how you got to where you are with uh, your blog and, and the show as it is right now, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like I should very humbly note that my net worth and Warren Buffett's net worth are yeah. quite different. Not yet. So, not, not not to put so, you not to put you two on moral financial playing sure, grounds. Sure. But, yeah. Oh, I know what you mean. I yeah. just kind of want to like validate for the audience. Like I am not <laughs> that well off. Um, not not by any stretch, but I would say for someone my age uh, and for, again, for the level of education that I have, like a communications degree from a state school, um, I'm probably doing pretty well, like relatively speaking. But yeah, the post uh, that you're referring to, I really, I made it because sometimes I'll get messages from people who will see the quote unquote success of money with Katie. And again, success in relative terms, we're, we're talking about, um, I would say success for a blog, but not, not like a, not, not like a Jeff Bezos level thing here, but they'll, I, I get the sense sometimes like, how did you do it? Oh my God. Like, you know, you're so smart or you're so like, it feels all very like agile, like congratulatory and, it's very kind, but, um, I wanted to show that like up until very, very recently in my life, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing or where I was going. And my own financial success is also very recent in my life. Um, as early as 18 months ago, I was making like $66,000 per year. So it's not as though I've been this established, you know, highly compensated or like successful person. It's been very random and it happened very recently. And the many years leading up to the, well, you know, what's happened now were full of complete diversions, energy and effort wise. Like I was talking in the post about how, you know, yes, in March I had my money with Katie show my face on the NASDAQ tower in Times Square. And, you know, we were the number one business podcast, millions of downloads and how exciting this is. But, you know, what you don't see when you see that success or that picture, that conventional idea of, oh, like someone, this person made it is the years that I spent trying to be a full-time fitness instructor, which meant many, many mornings of waking up at 4 a.m. to teach the early 5.30 class, being in rush hour traffic before and after work to get to a studio, the four-ish years that I wanted to ascend the ranks in this Fortune 100 company and was, you know, really beating myself up about not getting promoted quickly enough. 
Um, I had a blog for five years before Money with Katie that made $0 and went nowhere. Um, I had two failed personal finance consulting businesses over the years that, again, made very, very little money and were a massive waste of time. So I tried to analogize it to an index fund and that when you buy an index fund, Frankly, 95% of what you own is going to be trash, but you're going to own roughly 5% of the stock, like 5% of the stocks that you own within that index fund are going to have 300% returns. And that's where all your returns are going to come from. And everything else is going to be garbage. And that's how life is. That's how effort is. And that you never know what's actually going to pan out. So the fact that I quote unquote wasted the last seven years investing energy in things that went nowhere and made me no money and were complete waste Mm -hmm. ultimately didn't matter because one of the things that I did and one of the things that I tried worked really, really well. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, I think constantly feeling confused and uncertain and diverted in life is almost probably a sign that you're on the right track and mm-hmm. that you're you're getting closer. Um, and even when you get there, quote unquote, I still have no idea what I'm doing. Like I still wake up every day worrying that it's all going to go away and that people are going to decide they don't want to listen to me anymore. Like I still live <laughs> in constant fear that like this is all going to evaporate. I still don't know what I'm doing. There's no grand plan. So I don't know. I guess I just kind of wanted to show behind the curtain of like, yes, from the outside looking in, this looks like it's been a conventionally successful venture. And by some measures it has been, but this is the reality behind quote unquote overnight success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, something that I've really been trying to, I've talked to some of my just coworkers and friends about lately is, um, I think there is some inherent, I think, I think there's a lot of benefits in diversifying uh, diversifying your experiences and your skill sets. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is oftentimes I think we can get lost in the idea that like, oh, I got to get, um, you know, I've got, I've got to get this degree and then I need to get this graduate degree to go with it. And then I need to go to do, take these courses and get certified in this area. Yeah. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay any of those things. Um, but I think there is, can be a lot of benefit in just trying and oftentimes failing at new things. I know that's not a new idea, but oftentimes I see so many people where they will find one thing that maybe they're good at or one thing that maybe they can do, do, you know, relatively well and just shelter on that one thing. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but there's a lot of benefit, I think, in putting yourself out there in new experiences and trying new things and learning from those experiences in mm-hmm. order to enhance the the things you are good at. Uh, for you, I mean, I, I don't know how well your 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 uh, experience as a, a fitness coach went, but <laughs> I'm sure there's some things you learned during that time that allow you to do what you're doing now better than you Precisely. are th- better than you would be able to do it if you hadn't yes. done that. You think, know? Oh, and I think that's an amazing example too, because I think about the amount of confidence required to teach a cycling class under the, the spotlit podium <laughs> in front of 50 people in a sports bra. It's like you get very accustomed to messing up and making mistakes and mm-hmm. having people judge. And I think that that's, and, and you learn how to like motivate people and, and mm-hmm. really connect with people. So I think you're absolutely right. Like, I don't mean to interrupt, but I I do want to echo that. I think that even that example that you just picked out is one that I think about often where I'm like, yeah, that was not my life's path. That was Mm -hmm. not like my soul's purpose, Mm -hmm. but it's not like it was all for nothing or it's not like I got nothing out of that experience. Yeah. And and I don't think that should be discounted at all. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it can be, I, I find it uh, it can, it can be challenging to not get discouraged sometimes by the overwhelming success of those around you sometimes. Uh, you know, like I currently right now I work at an accounting firm. Um, and there's a lot of, like, I don't, I work in the marketing department at the accounting firm, but I see a lot of people, you know, they will get accredited in this way, or they'll have this great success in this thing. I'm happy for them. But then like, there's always that creeping feeling of like, man, am I like, I see yeah. them doing these things like, is what I'm doing, is it enough? And, you know, maybe we're taking different paths, maybe we're doing different things, but the experiences that we both have, whether it's a uh, structured in a path towards getting accredited in a certain way or getting a certain kind of certification, or whether you're doing something totally different, the experiences that you have and the diversity of your experiences 
I think whether you succeed or fail at them can really be a great benefit to whatever kind of career path you chase down. Um, and I think that can get forgotten in the weeds sometimes because just like kind of what we were talking about, when you see someone who has reached some level of quote unquote success, you can forget that, you know, yeah, maybe they're succeeding right now, but it was not a linear path there. They they most likely took many different detours, good and bad, that led them to that spot. Um and so I think that's a that's an important thing to remember, especially for people, uh, you know, my age and in their 20s, still trying to figure things out and learn, like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Totally. Uh, I, I, For me, my motto right now is just try. And if you fail, that's OK. I'd learn from that experience, you know. That's also still my motto. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, before we kind of finish up here, I want to ask you one more thing that I've got one yeah. kind of way to end things off. So you, um, you host a financial, uh, show, not just personal mm-hmm. finance, but you do a lot of things related to just the world of finance, both personal and corporate and, and international finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious for you, what in your mind are just three of the best, like if you could distill everything down, uh, this is one of those, those clip moments. What's the, what's the three best, like personal finance tips you, you try to live by and you would recommend for anyone, whatever age they're at. I can distill this very simply into a pithy (laughs) one-liner lucky for us. It's earn more, spend less, invest the difference. If you do those three things, you will be successful. And that's, I mean, if you had to boil it down, if you had to boil mm-hmm. all of the, and, and much ink has been spilled about the best ways to build wealth, but mm-hmm. those three things, it doesn't matter how you do them, but if mm-hmm. you do them, you will be a very wealthy person. And I think for people that are just starting out or who are like, you know what? Yes, this resonates. I want to be more in control of my finances. I want to be proactively and progressively building more wealth for myself, accumulating wealth that I can, you know, deploy for myself and my family, my community. I would say the the number one thing, the number one place to start is you got to know how much your life costs. You have to get it on paper, understand how much it costs to be you, to live the life you want to live. And then from there, you can assess what the next best step is. For some people, they will look at how much their life costs and they'll say, Ooh, yeah, I'm already earning a pretty good amount, but man, I'm running right up to the edge every single month. And like, I'm, I'm living way too close to my means. And it's not because my standard of living is, you know, reasonable and my structural expenses are, are high. It's because I'm just death by a thousand paper cuts, death Mm -hmm. by a thousand swipes. Um, I need to rein it in and really assess where I find joy and, and try to create some margin that way. Other people will find I'm pretty much just buying the bare necessities and I'm barely getting by for that person. You know, the answer is probably you need to go find a better paying job. And I recognize that that advice sounds so annoyingly and frustratingly simple and obvious like, oh yeah, Katie, just go make more money. Sure. But I do think it's helpful to get kind of focused. I'm like, okay, I am likely being underpaid. Like if I make less than $150,000 per year, I'm probably a victim of wage stagnation and I'm probably being underpaid. I need to go leverage my network, leverage my skill sets to find a job that's going to pay me better or find another way to earn more income on the side, whether that be something like rental property investing. Again, far easier said than done. I don't invest in rental properties, but I know that that is a preferred method of building wealth for some people. Um, Or if it's getting another part-time job, just creating more inflow of cash. That way you have the buffer, you have the margin, you can start to accumulate. But I think for most people, it's going to start with figuring out how much you're spending and, and whether or not that spending number feels like reasonable to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I think, like I said, finance, your personal finance can be as complicated or as 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 simple as you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it's good to break it down to like, at the end of the day, when, you know, a lot of times, if I ever get worried about just where I'm at, I'm like, okay, am I doing enough? Like, you know, you said, even now, like still you you worry about finances sometimes being able to distill it down to, okay, am I fulfilling the, the basic criteria that's going to steer me in the right direction? Yeah. If I am, then okay, I'll, I can figure out the details later. Um, and so I think that's great. I would 100% agree. And uh, <laughs> I, I think you, you did a great job of distilling that down. Um, before we finish up here, uh, I have one final kind of segment I like to end each episode of the show off with. Uh, this final segment is a little, a little bit of tradition with the show, um, but it is entirely separate from everything we've talked about at this point. Okay. So 
Uh, I like to end each episode with a little segment I call 15 quick questions. Uh, This is just 15 questions. They're this or that questions. And I want to just hear your off the top of your head thoughts on these questions. So does that sound good to you? Yes. All right. This is 15 quick questions with Katie. Uh, Number one, beach vacation or mountain vacation? I live in the mountains, so beach. Hot coffee or iced coffee? Iced. Summer, fall, winter, or spring? Fall. Sweet or savory food? Sweet. Are Crocs fashionable? Yes or no? (laughs) The Balenciaga Croc. I'm going to go no. Okay. Uh, Pineapple on pizza. Yes or no? Absolutely. Uh, I thought you were going to say absolutely not. I was going to be very upset. I'm a a huge pineapple fan. Hawaiian all all day, every way, baby. Good. That's the, that's, I'm glad, I'm glad we can agree on that. Uh, Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Guacamole or salsa? Guac. Uh, crunchy peanut butter or smooth? Ooh, I'm gonna go crunchy. I'm gonna be a little contrarian. See, okay, I, I agree with you. I'm a big, I'm a crunchy oh, fan. Hell yeah, I'm a, I'm we a crunchy have, fan. Uh, good food palettes. Maybe it's the Kentucky Tennessee connection. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're aligned. That's a, it's a Kentucky Tennessee thing. Yeah. Uh, let's see, New York style pizza or deep dish? Oh, I guess deep dish. I'm a crust girl. I'm nice. like, give me all the all the carbs. Who wins in a dance battle, The Rock or Kevin Hart? (laughs) (laughs) Kevin Hart. Uh, If you're going to read a book, would you go nonfiction or fiction? You know, up until recently, I would have said nonfiction, but I've been getting into the fiction thing. So I think fiction. I have as well lately. So uh, I I know where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Halloween or New Year's? Oh, that's a good one. Of the of the uh, fall and Christmas. winter holidays. Nice. Christmas. I'm a Christmas baby. So I'm, fi- I, we, I'm finding out we have a lot of like here. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a I'm a big Christmas fan as well. You are? Okay. I called December Katie Palooza because when I was little, <laughs> I was like the only child and grandchild on both sides. So like it was like my birthday was three days before Christmas and it's just our entire house turned into like it, I, I really was like, I thought the month of December was like about me until I was like 12. See, so See, see, that my birthday, my birthday's in April. So I wasn't born in December, but I'm the kind of person where I kid you not, I was listening to Christmas music multiple weeks ago. Like in the middle of September, I was like, I was like, you know, Santa Claus. Like I was just like, it's just a magical into it. time. It's like, look it. at what's not to like. As soon as it drops below 60 degrees, I'm like, it's Christmas time. Yep. I don't care what time of year it <laughs> is. It is. sweater on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then final question, um, would you, <laughs> this is a question I, I end each, uh, each 15 quick questions oh, with, goodness. and I want to hear your, I want to hear your thought process. Would you rather fight 100 duck sized horses or one horse sized duck? And I want to, I want to know what your, what's your line of thought is on this. <laughs> I think I'm going to go. Oh God, that's hard. I think I'm going to go <laughs> horse sized duck. <laughs> Because uh, and so you're and taking I, one big duck. One, I'm one taking big duck. one large duck instead of 100 <laughs> tiny horses. I think because to me it seems more, it seems simpler to focus on one rather than a hundred, <laughs> even if it's big. And also, horses have like very strong bites, so I feel like I could do better with like the quack. <laughs> I don't know. And like they don't have like a duck doesn't have hooves, so like yeah, I'm gonna go duck. <laughs> You know, I, I get a different response every time I ask this question. I've yet to I've yet to hear horses have strong, you know, bites and ducks have quacks. I just that's, feel that's like a, a horse, one. even like a tiny horse could do more damage than a giant duck. Like there's something about a duck that's still just so like, oh, like that's it's funny. a duck, even if it's humongous. That's funny. That's funny. I like that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for playing uh, 15 quick questions. Um, But yeah, with with all that being said, uh, before we kind of finish up here, I know obviously you have uh, your show and so I'll I'll put a link in the description of this episode for the show. Do you have any other links or, or anything that I should be aware of that I can direct the people to in order to keep up with you? Sure. So I'm pretty much money with Katie everywhere. So moneywithkatie.com is the website that's kind of the central hub. And then money with Katie on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. That's K-A-T-I-E. Um, but yeah, if you're a podcast fan, check out the show. Some episodes are very tactical, very in the weeds, very like true nuts and bolts of money. And then others are more philosophical. What does it all mean? What does it mean to be a millennial in 21st century America trying to build wealth? So I think depending on what you're into, there will probably be something that you would enjoy. 
Awesome. Well, I'll make sure there's a link for all that down there. So if you're listening uh, and you want to check out the show or her blog or anything affiliated with Katie, then I would one highly recommend it. Uh, <laughs> I, I personally am a fan, uh, but I'll, I'll keep that down there. So if you want to check it out, then feel free to head to the description to give it, give it a uh, check it out and give her some support. So uh, with all that out of the way, Katie, thank you again very much thank for you. taking the time to chat with me today. I hope that I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I, I know I really enjoyed it. And I hope that's um, to all the listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And as always, I appreciate you uh, tuning into the show. I will catch you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the podcast. As one final reminder, if you'd like to support the show, then don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcast or share it with a friend. If you'd like to check out any links that were mentioned during the show or follow the show or myself on social media, then feel free to head to the description of today's episode to find these links. As always, thank you again for checking out today's episode, and I really hope you enjoyed it. I will catch you all on the next episode of the podcast. See ya.